The Ringer's Charles Holmes and co-host Grace Spellman present the most notorious new podcast in the industry, The Ringer Music Show. Every Tuesday, they'll bring you the latest news, the hottest takes, and the deepest reporting about the wild world of music and the chaotic industry that creates it. Check out The Ringer Music Show exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a very delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit amazon.com slash pureleaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you, Yola Tango, as always, for the intro music and the outro music. We have Steven Satterfield. You may have seen him recently as the host of High on the Hog, the Netflix docuseries that was made from Dr. Jessica Harris's book, High on the Hog. We've talked about it a couple times on this podcast. It is extremely good, beautiful and um, important stories that should have been told a long time ago. Uh, He is just this multi-hyphenate, extraordinary individual, uh, trained sommelier, uh, cook, poet, journalist, CEO, founder of Whetstone Media. I know they just uh, ended their public fundraising efforts because they're trying to raise money to do a whole slate of podcasts, but I know that they would love any support. So check it out. Whetstone Media, that's W-H-E-T-S-T-O-N-E. Just an amazing fellow and uh, really honored to have him on this podcast. Uh, We have a few things to talk about. One is uh, we have one more podcast this week, and then we're going to take a little break. Isaac, Chris, and myself, need a little time off. We're going to reorganize just like we're taking some time off on Recipe Club and then we'll be back. Uh, Not sure how long, but we'll be back. I promise you that much. Just a little time off. But before I get into the podcast with Steven, I wanted to just talk about a few random things. One, uh, I think that I'm seeing more disgruntled customers because of weights at restaurants and the fact that menus are a little bit smaller in size. And I can just envision critics complaining about it. I don't think that is not necessarily fair. They can do whatever the fuck they want, but customers and critics alike should just basically shut the fuck up. Uh, restaurants are doing their best. And if they have a limited menu, there's good reason for that. So... Be nice. Be nice to the servers. Be nice to the captains. Be nice to the cooks. Not that most of you aren't, but I've certainly seen with my own eyes um, how unhappy some customers can be with slower than usual service. 
or some specials or regular dishes that customers are really used to having not being available. And again, as I said, there's a lot of good reasons for that. And the last thing we need are people to complain about them. So just don't. Just be patient as everyone gets up to speed. But that may take a long time. We are, uh, uh, things are just different. No reason to go into that right now. Um, but I wanted to talk about a couple things that I've been making a lot. It's summer. It's tomato season. I have been making panzanella. And if you don't know what panzanella is, it's basically a bread salad. I learned it many years ago from Chef Sisha Utazar, who used to be a sous chef at Gramercy Tavern, then ran uh, Witchcraft for Tom Colicchio. And there was like a month period where he was pinching in for us uh, at Craft, and he would make this he would make varieties of this salad and I never had it before and later learned that it's a Tuscan in origin. And I've had a, a variety of this. I've made a lot of different varieties of this, but it is an underrated salad. And I think one of the reasons it's underrated is people don't know what to do with it. Is it an entree? Cause it can be filling. Is it a side? Is it an appetizer? Who cares? It is delicious. It's a salad with a lot more bread. It's also, I think, strange for people because it's a wet salad. It's a wet bread salad. Imagine, you know, salad with croutons. It's basically salad with croutons, but more croutons. If you haven't made it before, make it. It is delicious. I almost feel like it's a little bit like gazpacho salad. That's how I think about it with basil. And I love it very much. And as long as tomatoes are in season, that's the, that's the salad that I'm making. It's not even really a salad. As I said, I don't even know what category it is other than it's delicious. I don't see it on nearly enough restaurant menus. I think one of the reasons why is it's a, probably a difficult pickup. And secondly, a lot of customers don't know that much about it. And I hope that we see more panzanella salads. Very, very good. Love the food of Tuscany. And I don't know if it's underrated, but I just personally don't see it that much. And um, people want to know what I make. I've been making that a lot and I've been taking it a little bit easier on social media and Instagram as I have uh, been taking not some time off. I'm working, but you know, we're, we're, we're out here, we're in Wyoming and I haven't been working as, uh, as much, but clearly not taking photos, but uh, I have made panzanella at least half a dozen times in a month. Um, the other thing that I've been making, it's two, and uh, I know it can be considered a shameless plug, but it is. I make a lot of pork butts. I don't make balsams at home, really, uh, at all. I, I like to cook my pork butt and any chunk of meat that needs to be slow roasted or braised, just short of it falling apart. Well short, I would say. I don't even know the temp range on it, but I like it where I can thinly slice it without it falling apart. I despise falling off the bone braises and and slow roasts. I want to slice it where if you slice a thin piece, it's it's not tough. It's soft. And in some ways, it almost has the texture of a slow temp, low temp uh, sous vide bath of um, short ribs or pork collar, something like that, where uh, something that is really tough, if you slow cook it in a water bath, it almost becomes the texture of a sirloin. So it's soft, yet there's texture. That's what I'm looking for. It's it's like right past the stage where it starts to break down the the muscle fibers and and the fat and the sinew start to break down and it just gets soft. 
What I don't want is it to be super soft. I just want it where it just gets soft so I can thinly slice it. And that's how I've been eating my pork butt. The only difference now is I just put it in a pot and I cure it with Momofuku spicy salt. This is a no-brainer. It is so fucking easy. And it will make everyone happy. I promise you. I liberally coat a chunk of pork butt. If it's a really big piece, I'll probably cut it into two and I'll separate one where you have the shoulder bone versus more the the loin area on the butt, the leaner part. And mainly because I'm trying to cook the pork roast faster. So cutting one big chunk into two smaller pieces. And you don't have to cure it overnight, but I do. And I put it in the oven, uncovered, 250 degrees, 275 for about four, four and a half hours. And when I want to like serve it, I just crank it up for maybe 450, 500 degrees for like 30 minutes till it gets really golden brown. Let it rest and slice and serve. And I'll serve that on a salad with the panzanella that I just described or with some, or I'll just chop it up and make some tacos, some carnitas. It is extremely versatile. I highly recommend you guys check out how to do this. It is the simplest recipe. Take pork butt, cover it in Momofuku spicy salt, roast it at 250, 275 degrees for four to five hours, and then crank up the heat, get some color on it, and you're ready to go. Just don't do it till it falls off the bone. That's gross. Sorry, everybody that likes to see the bone taken out. That just means you overcooked it. Uh, lastly, another, cause I've been using a lot of the Momofuku savory salts because it's really helped out my cooking when I don't have other ingredients at my disposal. And one of the recipes that I make quite a bit, something that a lot of, again, cooks make in family meals in restaurants around the country is family meal chicken, which is sheet pan chicken on a wire rack. And I know sheet pan cooking is all the rage, but guess what? If you worked in restaurants before, that's how you fucking make family meals. So there's nothing fucking new there. And if you don't have a wire rack, it still works. I like using the wire rack because it cooks a little bit faster. And on chicken thighs and dark meat and legs, I just literally coat the shit out of it with tingly salt. And I put it at an oven at five you can do 500 degrees, 450 to 500 degrees and put it on like the middle to upper middle rack on your oven and just cook the shit out of it. The moment you see it dark and golden brown, I'm going to say 25 minutes total, 20 to 30 minutes, somewhere in between there, it's going to be done. And you want to make sure that your chicken is not touching, like spread it out like there are cookies. You know what I mean? So it'll cook fast and evenly. And that's it, guys. You can serve that chicken and you can serve that pork with panzanella and you have a delicious dinner or leftovers for lunch. That is amazing. This is what I've been eating all the time. Panzanella salad with some kind of roast chicken or roast pork. I highly recommend you do that. Yeah, I can say it because they're my salts, but we developed them because we fucking use them all the time. And uh, I wanted to give you guys some summer cooking tips. You don't always have to use a grill. You can just cook it in your oven. And that's what I've been doing. So that's it. I'll let you guys get into this conversation with Steven Satterfield and Christine. We are joined with Steven Satterfield. He is 
the host of the show that you should have watched at least once already, High on the Hog, and he's been in the industry a long time. And now you're located in Atlanta running Whetstone Media. Yep, that's right. That's right. Um, I, I recently saw that you guys are are, are expanding uh, what you want to do. Can you can you let everyone know just quickly what Whetstone is trying to accomplish? Because it's just not just any media company. Yeah, um, appreciate that, Dave. Yeah, so Whetstone is a media company, a food media company that is rooted in the idea of food origins as a means of exploring and better understanding human beings and our relationship to the world. So essentially, it is a food anthropology magazine and media company. And as you alluded to, we just recently announced a couple of weeks ago that we are forming a podcast company that will allow us to tell more stories from around the world, all rooted in this global gastronomy framework. And that shares a lot of spiritual similarity, Stephen, to the show that Dave's talking about, High on the Hog, which is based yeah, on, yeah. Another, you know, like Dave said, you should have watched the show. You probably should have read the book too. Jessica, <laughs> Dr. Jessica Harris's High on the Hog. Can you talk a little bit about that intersection of what you're doing with Whetstone and, and sort of what you were trying to accomplish with the show? Yeah, definitely. You know, I have been so... First of all, just humbled to be a part of this project because Dr. J for me is probably one of the most influential people on earth in terms of shaping my career. Um, in my early 20s, when I started to have some of these epiphanies around food origins and, and really the power of that framework of origins as a means of pushing back against historical erasure um, as a means of understanding one's relationship, as I said, to the world through our own identity. Um, those are food stories, understanding food through the lens and context of migration. All of this framing was really given to me um, in reading Dr. J's work um, and understanding that there were more ways to talk about food and think about food um, than what we were seeing in so-called mainstream or traditional food media. Um, but really a, a way that was more closely tied to the story of our own kind of cultural identities and ancestries. And that's, that is high on the hog in a nutshell. You know, it is a, a deeply personal and emotional journey, you know, as, as a member, a descendant of the African diaspora, I go to West Africa to kind of retrace the footsteps of, of Dr. J and of her scholarship in the book High on the Hog, which is a culinary tale of the story of African-American people beginning in West Africa uh, prior to the transatlantic slave trade. So um, an honor to be uh, involved in it, as I said, but really a cool thing for me is to feel a sense of validation <laughs> in, in like this thesis um, that I've been working with for so long and trying to get people to understand food as like a very powerful way of connecting with our own identity. Um, and I think a lot of people is even non-black people had that same experience and watching high on the hog. Um, so Steven, you know, you said 
a minute ago, you know, you're, you were saying basically whether or not you're part of the African diaspora, if you're if you're an African American viewer, you know, you're you're hoping people will see this connection to culture to through food. You know, how we can see ourselves and in, in, in our past through food, and and it's interesting because uh, within like three minutes of the first episode of High on the Hog, you know, you land in Benin and you say. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase, but you say it's so strange coming home to a place you've never been before, and you know your experience, my experience are very very different. But that immediately struck me as somebody who you know grew up Asian American and traveled to Asia for the first time, right? Like you can form this identity totally. around what it is to be whatever hyphen American, but then it's very different to set foot in the place where your ancestors come from. Can you talk a little bit about just that very first act of connection? Because this is what it's all about, right? Like trace your food back to totally. where, it, where it comes from. And, you know, in your case, a place that you had never been. Like what, what was that experience like? I, I feel that it really resonates with me. Totally. That is extremely astute because that feeling is a universal feeling, even though it was expressed in a deeply personal way. What we're talking about when we talk about food is migration, you know, um, and it's a migration of of people, of plants, of animals and technology. And that technology is, is intellectual technology, is agricultural technology. And all of these things are all about movement, you know, in the context of of the human experience. And so when you talk about being the member of a diaspora that implies movement that implies oftentimes movement that was not optional movement that was forced upon a specific people um, as is the case in, in the african diaspora and so in these stories of separation from the homeland the longing of the child from the motherland um, you know, this is really like deeply emotionally resonant stuff for people. I think in ways that are surprising, we don't often know that we have these um, feelings of longing and belonging and the desire to come home. Um, these are big universal themes for people. I think it is immensely powerful when children of the diaspora do come home. Um, I, I think it, especially growing up in a white supremacist society, um, it's really powerful to understand your place in the world in the context of millennia and not just uh, decades of struggle like in the U.S., for instance, where, where I was raised in the U.S. South, where we try to sort of diminish uh, the, the Black experience, for instance, to... Um, you know, maybe like the 60s or civil rights or soul food or Martin Luther King, um, when really, you know, our history upon arrival in this country was about our agricultural acumen, was about establishing the wealth of the nation. Um, and so I think seeing a more truthful and, and fuller representative history for each of our respective identities makes more space for us in the world. And, and that is the, the powerful transformational shift in culture that, that we're looking to, to foster when we make this type of work. Do you feel that, you know, and I, I ask this to Chris all the time um, when we try to 
talk about the food landscape and how people think about food and oftentimes an appropriate revisionist understanding of food. Do you feel that with all the talk that's happening, that this is going to be a long lasting change or is this potentially just a blip? Because there should be more shows that talk about all the different stories that haven't been told. And it's like shocking to me that it's taken this long for a show like this to tell these stories. And oftentimes I think most people wouldn't even know any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, I, I mean, several years ago, I remember Dr. Jessica Harris gave a talk at the, we were trying to help her or she was helping out with the museum of food and drink. And she's like, American food is black food. And I was like, Oh, I never thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and at the time I hadn't read her book and she just sort of gives the whole premise of what her book is about and sort of her whole life's work has been about. And I was like, mm-hmm. nobody's ever told me that before. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and I was like, huh. And totally. it totally messed me up. And it caused me to think not just about what American food is, but food basically anywhere. Whereas you've said mi- migration or forced migration, who gets to tell the stories of people, mm. you know, that don't get to tell these stories. And, and I, I just exactly. wonder, does this continue or is it just lip service? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're now asking all the right questions, right? Like (laughs) I actually do think that we will continue on this path and I'm not an optimistic person either. Um, but I, I do believe that we have crossed a kind of threshold. And the reason that I say that is because, I mean, you know, we, I went to culinary school, you know, you went to culinary school, like you, as you very well know, The way that we have understood quality in relationship to food has been through a European context and specifically a French context, which even if you're from anywhere else in Europe, you're like, wait, what? Like, this is the the barometer for all things excellent and aspirational in food. Like, it doesn't it doesn't seem right. And I think with the passage of time and more careful analysis and investigation around a lot of those hierarchies and frameworks, like it doesn't really stand up. It doesn't hold up that this is how generations, plural of chefs and food lovers all over the world would be taught and trained. I trained as a sommelier. It's the same thing in that education. And so I think that there has been a kind of awakening broadly speaking, and not even just in food, you know, across cultures um, where people are now looking at um, food as a part of their own identities in a way that doesn't allow for them to just accept what people have told them as the end all be all. Um, But to go back to your point around storytelling in particular and the who's absent in those stories like to me that is is fundamentally the point of all of this because it's very clear to see that stories are synonymous with power so in talking about the power of storytelling sometimes i think we actually diminish how powerful the stories are because stories are actually the power itself, right? So it's like when uh, a lot of times in the organizing communities, they will say, you know, white supremacy is not the shark, it's the ocean, 
right? <laughs> and like that's the same thing with with story, is that um, you know storytelling isn't a form of power. Stories are power, and you can see how people have exploited that power to suppress and erase those who do not hold power. And so what ends up happening is that we all collectively assume and accept stories that were written and perpetuated by ruling classes. When we know well that it's the working classes, the peasant classes, the immigrant classes who are the ones that define culture that we absorb and that gets obfuscated in these corruptions or exploitations of power that are repackaged to us as stories. And we know those stories, especially about our identities, are stories that are very, very difficult to move beyond. Those are generational stories. Those are those are stories where we're now telling our parents in some cases, hey, you know, the things that you were raised to believe, the things that, that our elders were raised to believe, like we need new stories. This is no longer true for us. And so I think a lot of the work that we are trying to do is to help people bring new stories into their day-to-day lives. Can I suggest, <laughs> I, I, I mean, Stephen, like what you said is, is so such a perfect summation of, of, of why this needs to happen, right? Like the, the conquerors always get to write the history books and we need to change that yeah. part of it. But can I also suggest that one of the most important things I think for the longevity of this conversation, that this keeps on happening, that shows like High on the Hog keep getting made, that people keep exploring the food of the African diaspora, of, of, of exploring American food, is the fact that your show is so fucking beautiful. <laughs> like, I mean that yeah. on like an actual shop by shop basis. Like, it makes it look desirable. Like, I want to experience what you're experiencing. I want to taste what you're tasting. I want to have the connections that you're making throughout this show. And, and I think about, you know, what you said, like the American food and what, like the from the 19th century up until the late 80s, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, French food was the pinnacle. Fine dining, sort of continental European dining was the, the bar against everything measured. I think about like, Tony Bourdain and I think about Jonathan Gold and like how a whole like, the whole conversation shifted to you know for better or worse shifted into like can we find the mom and pop thing the off the beaten road thing the sort of nitty gritty down and dirty thing and that was sheerly because those guys and the people and other people of course I'm not giving them all the credit made it so desirable made it look beautiful mm-hmm. to eat you know in a, an abandoned airplane hangar or something in Opelika, florida whatever it was like it was just mm-hmm. i just think that is such an important part of high on the hog and, and it's really like speaks to you as well because you're not coming from this just as like a, a historian or an, a cultural anthropologist like your background is in dining i've had dinners with you you love mm-hmm. food in like a very mm-hmm. genuine way in the same way i know like the people i respect most in this business like dave really actually like food. I can see it on your face, eating the food on the show. And I just think like, that is such an important part of this, that it becomes, yes, it's about storytelling. Yes, it's about power dynamic. But it's really also about like, hey, you all want in on this because look how fucking cool it is, right? Totally. Yeah, man. Exactly that. Like, exactly that too. Um, Again, I'm just going to name Roger Ross Williams. You know, Roger already brought to this project his pedigree as an Oscar-winning 
director, um, watching him direct scenes, the the scenes in episode two in the Sea Islands with the Gullah dancers. Yeah. You know, he he directed, um, of course, the Africa episode um, and all those shots as well. And and like I said, just the cadence of the show, the pacing of the show, just allowed itself for so much beauty. You know, there was so much beauty around us. And because we weren't just like rushing through scenes, we could capture it, you know. And and I'm also a very, um, I mean, y'all can probably tell, I talk slowly. I'm, I'm a kind of cerebral person. I have a pretty interior life and, and mind. And um, in some ways, I was worried about how that would translate or not <laughs> on television, especially in the role of a host. But you know, I, I really felt that because of the deliberate pace of the show, um, it actually allowed for my personality to fit within that a little bit more. But but to the point um, around beauty, you know, I think beauty is central to all of this. My journey with food began as a hedonist, as someone who loved nice shit, who loved really <laughs> good food, who loved really good wine. Like I was going, you know, to eat at restaurants, nice restaurants when I was in high school. I, I was deeply, deeply in the world of wine by my 21st birthday. And I came to that, honestly, you know, like I just still, you know, to this day, love fine food and drink about more than anything else. Um, and so how we capture that, um, how we capture that ceremony, how we capture that ritual, how we capture the convening, how we capture the technique, of course, the origin, like that is also part of the mandate. And like, especially with with Whetstone, you know, we like a lot of people, real talk, don't even read most of the articles in the magazine, <laughs> but I'm totally OK with that. You know, I my my job is to actually invite folks in, right, like coming to this from a hospitality point of view. This is a life's journey. This is a life's work. This is a life's way of deepening one's pleasure as well. And I, I think like I never lose the pleasure component, the capacity for beauty and celebrating um, either in, in working as a journalist or chronicler of, of food culture um, and definitely in my day to day life. Like I'm regularly eating and drinking extremely well. Um, and you're right, Chris, I, I think that does need to be celebrated and we need to celebrate when folks do that, um, really well. You know, you know what Steven's also very good at, Dave, <laughs> you, you said, you know, Steven, you described yourself, you know, as cerebral or, or sort of slow talking, <laughs> but you're also, he's also so good at asking like the exact direct question when you're, when you're standing there with Glenn Roberts from Anson Mills and you're holding Carolina gold rice in your hand and you're like, so is this the legacy of slavery? <laughs> I was like, holy shit. <laughs> Nobody's ever, asked. I mean, like Glenn Roberts has been on what? 450 billion forms of food media about Carolina gold rice. Oh, I don't know anybody's like talked to him on camera <laughs> been like, so uh, does it make you feel weird that you're a white guy? It's <laughs> like, it's on, it's unreal, man. He's so good at that. Right. Dave, like, uh, I thought it was impressive. That was, uh, I was like, are you like, to <laughs> Credit to Glenn. I was just mostly looking at his face to see how he's going to react. I, I thought he, I thought uh, I, he did. He handled he himself well. I think. He yeah, did but, well. but Steven, man, he did that, well. You're, that was amazing. Um, I mean, y'all know Glenn. You know, we a lot of us know Glenn. 
And so if there is one person in our industry who is genuinely equipped to receive that question, i.e. meaning they've actually spent real time unprovoked and unsolicited thinking about it, it's Glenn. And so he has earned the benefit of the doubt as a person that I think thinks seriously about these things. And so he got a serious question from me about it. Um, <laughs> if I didn't think that he had the range, then I wouldn't have asked the question. But at the same time, that discomfort is necessary. And it was necessary because that is the kind of interrogation that polite society and conversation doesn't allow us to get to. And so we're not, we're not able to properly frame what it means for a white man to continue to make not only a living, but like a very good living, you know, hundreds of years after this industry almost collapsed completely at the loss of an enslaved labor force. What does it mean that the original wealth of this nation was founded upon enslaved Black labor in South Carolina? And if we looked at the ownership structure of the land and of the assets of the land in rice production, that the numbers are probably just as abhorrent as they were 200 years ago in terms of equity and ownership, especially because it was the rice coast of the Sierra Leone that brought our people to this nation to begin with. And so it's not appropriate to be selling in that tradition and with that knowledge without the capacity for some hard questions and scrutiny. And we should all in that moment be asking ourselves, how is it that the ownership structure is still this inverted centuries later? And then we can start to look at some things that are structural, like we see with Gabrielle's story in the same episode, that when Black folks do exercise agency, do invest in the land, do add value, the story of our displacement is the story that continues. And so when we don't have an opportunity to realize value and the folks that we are in community with and around are actively capitalizing on the value that is so closely tied to our ancestry. And again, the principal wealth of the nation, the formative wealth of the nation, like we should talk about that. And so does food allow us to get there? I think so. I think it's a lot easier to get to that conversation in the context of Carolina gold rice than it would be, you know, under any other circumstance, like where we could talk about a reparative or, or reparations um, as part of a framework to make whole and to make just what was stolen and, and what was not right. So um, I appreciate Glenn for humoring me in that. There is no right or wrong answer. I think that moment was as much about the space for the question itself as it was for the answer. Yeah, I, I think, I think again, Steve, it's like we, I, I feel more or less speechless every time you finish saying something. So I'm like, well, that's it. 
he did it. But I mean, Stephen, you know, like what, what's special about the show and, and special about your approach and what you just described there is that the tenor of the conversation right now around food and, and power and all of this can be like not a conversation. And what mm-hmm. I think is, is interesting there is like you, like you said, you knew that Glenn of all people would have a, a good answer. And what's special is that like you asked a hard question and didn't just leave it at that. It wasn't about gotcha. It wasn't like it wasn't, you weren't being Borat, right? Like you were mm-hmm. asked the question you said, and here's what a smart answer might sound like people. If you're, if you're, if you're somebody who's thought about this and I think that's so important, mm-hmm. right? Cause I, I think that you asked that tough question and, and I don't, I, I wouldn't have answers to a lot of hard questions like that. And, and it makes me mm-hmm. scared to think about like the sort of gotcha angle of it, but like hearing the right, not even the right answer, like you said, there's not a right or wrong answer, but hearing a, an informed answer is, is super important for people. I think. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the trouble is that no one wants to be implicated, right? No one wants to be the bad guy. And it's troublesome because in an effort to protect our own sanctity or or visions of ourself and our own morality, it makes it hard for what's true to be part of the conversation and be part of reality. And so if you're too busy protecting yourself, if you're so consumed with absolving yourself from any perceived or actual wrongdoing or benefit or advantage, then it's like trying to win an argument when you're busy crafting your rebuttal while the other person's trying to persuade you, like you're never going to get there. And so what needs to happen, I think first and foremost is like people got to chill. Like people got to realize that it is not an indictment on your character to be born part of a racialized ruling class. Like that, you didn't do that. That's okay. But what is not okay is in an effort to defend oneself against the discomfort, right? And the discomfort exists because there's no analysis. So it doesn't exist in the light. It exists in the shadows. It exists in the dark. And in that place of existence, then it is not a place from which we can actually grow. We can't learn because we can't see it. And so bringing stuff into the light is not only essential, but it also requires that those of us who are and this is the work, those of us who are bringing these difficult conversations into the light have to be doing it from a place of love and justice and wanting to create a society and a world that is more full of love and justice and not entering into those conversations or avoiding those conversations, which is far more common in an effort to protect one's own sanctity or impression of themselves. And so that inclination to of, of self-preservation, I really think avoids or, or prevents so many necessary conversations from having that. And if we're honest, because of all of the ways in which our society has reinforced this phenomena of segregation across race, culture, and class, there are very few people in our own lives who we come into contact with 
who are not part of our ethnic or racial or class background. And so going back to stories, our only way of making sense of these people who we don't know in real life, who we do feel are kind of taking up increasingly more space in conversations in society, the only thing that we have to refer back to are just the stories. So whatever we see on the news, whatever our parents um, told us when we were growing up about Black kids, about how Black people can't pick themselves up by the bootstraps, that's why they live in these communities. Of course, no mention of redlining, no knowledge of redlining. (laughs) Um, And so like, we have to understand that stories are pervasive and the only way that we can create new ones are for people to have the courage to engage in conversation with people who are not of their background, either racially or ethnically or monetarily, and forge those real conversations. If that feels too ambitious, which I think maybe that is a lot for people, at the very least, what I'm suggesting is that the capacity for change is possible if folks can stop feeling like they are being attacked anytime a conversation around systemic inequality happens. Systemic inequality, which is, of course, provable, right, is not a thing that ought to be debated. And the reason that it is debated is because people don't want to appear to be the bad guy in that particular story. So it's a roadblock. That was amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> quite the orator, man. Holy hell. Unbelievable. Um, that was so logically concise and perfect. I was like, wow, how's he doing this? <laughs> amazing. This, this is all I think about. This is the work. This is the work for real. Oh, man. I'm serious, Stephen. Like uh, halfway through, I was like, I think you should run for office. <laughs> Not that you want no, to. No, I think no, you no, have no. to. <laughs> He's the hero we need. No. Yeah. No, we got, got real work to do. <laughs> real work to do. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This may not even require an answer. It may seem trite to some people, but... As, a, as an Asian-American kid that never had any representation except in a handful of people 
or someone like short round on Goonies and stuff like that. Like you never see it. And I remember being able to count every time I saw an Asian person in a commercial or any movie. It's like always just like one thing or one person. It's like the token Asian thing. And it's the butt of all the jokes. Mm -hmm. And for me, of all the things I love, the one thing that I kept on actually making the most detailed, like mental note was there's like almost no white people in there. There's like no people other than black people in this. And I was like, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I, I would assume that was probably also, I know, I know the great director, Roger Williams, clearly black, but almost everybody is from a black perspective. When I, we were shooting something with Osai and she's like, Dave, like one of the most important things about the show is it's like the blackest show that's ever been made. One of the blackest shows that's ever Mm -hmm. been made on TV. Mm -hmm. And that, cannot be underestimated in the significance of -hmm. not just the message, but just the actual people can't like jump to the conclusion. Like, Oh, it's this great show about food. It's like just the mere fact that the producers and all of these things that happen, like this is why Mm -hmm. having the ability to tell these stories matter because you have the control to say it the way you want to say it. Totally that. Yeah. Yo, that's a very good point. I'm really glad um, that you brought that up and, and shout out to Osai. Um, yeah, I mean, that to me is where the power lies in this show and what makes the show actually special. When we talk about like not having seen anything like these scenes before, part of that is because the director is black, showrunner is black, the producers are black, host is black, source material is black. Even our, our lead camera guy, our camera one guy is a black dude. So it's like, and why that matters is because up until this point, when we have made media that helps us understand or seeks to help us understand how it came to be, where these traditions have come from, the folks who are making that media have never been a part of the ethnic or racial background of the subjects themselves. And so what ends up happening is that the media has a filter and whether or not the filter is intentional, whether or not even people realize the material is being filtered, it is because there's a translator, there's a synthesizer, there's someone there in the production funnel that says, oh, I think I get what you mean or I know my audience and let's say it like this, let's shoot it like this, let's do it like that. And what ends up happening in that translation is the same thing that happens in real life when you play telephone. Like by the time you get to the other side of the room, you're like, I have no idea what the message is. I have no idea what was said from the person who originated this message. And I think that's the same thing in media. And actually, because it's all we've ever seen, we haven't really understood that that's what we're watching. And so when you see something that isn't that, it feels so striking and it's hard to articulate. Why does it feel so different? It's because of a, of a level of care of the subjects and the material. It is a level of engagement that is rooted in a shared lived experience so that we really do know our people. We really do know the material. And so when we're making a love letter to the subjects and to the material, like, of course, it's going to hit differently. And I think that this is true 
for stories that we see um, all the time editorially, like the stories that are coming from descendants of the diaspora, especially in conversation with the diaspora, like that's not a thing that you can really get, <laughs> you know, with, without having someone that has that that cultural connection and that lived experience. So that when we see you move around the world, Dave, like obviously seeing you host a show in West Africa versus like Korea, that's going to land much differently. First and foremost, it's going to land differently for you. And we're all going to pick up on that. And now imagine the same thing, but the production staff all are sharing in that kind of ethnic background and cultural understanding. Like the material that y'all will put out in no way, it simply cannot be compared to what the material of, um, in this instance, a non-Asian or non-Black crew would have been able to produce. And so I, I think that distinction and that singularity that people sometimes are struggling to articulate or identify and, and trying to say, like, why is the show look different? Um, I actually think that it is the inherent Blackness of, of the show and its creators and of the source material. And of course, the person delivering um, the message and the story, I think that is what makes it different for people. Um, I think it really matters. And I would love to see a kind of pivot or adaptation in food media that seeks to do more exploration um, that is in conversation with uh, diaspora and descendant. For those that are listening, <clears throat> you know, this is just from my perspective, from what just Stephen just said, as someone, as Chris and I make TV, there was a scene where you're with the great Michael Twitty and, you know, he, I, I've seen yeah. him talk about okra and making rice for fire before. But the one thing that I'd never seen, which I thought was crucially important for me, because I was like, I was thinking, I was like, oh, if this wasn't maybe an all black ensemble, maybe this scene would get cut out because it wouldn't be seen as important, totally. potentially. It was when you guys totally. were like tasting the spoon, you know, not tasting it from the spoon, but you're, you were able to share, this is how I grew up tasting it. And yep. that was a, to me, I was like one of my favorite bits of the whole show because in some ways that was like almost like a throwaway scene, but it tied yeah. so much together for me. And I was like, that to me are these little moments that, if someone else wasn't potentially black, again, I'm just using my perspective, my imagination, that that has maybe a lower probability of making it in final edit. Ugh, that is so real. That is so real. <laughs> and I, I it, it is especially resonant coming from you because I, I know that you know this, you know, and, and you know how like those decisions get made. And it feels like very benign, you know, it's not like it's a malicious thing it is rooted in what these folks feel is in service to the story however those omissions are actually the things that make the magic happen you know that's what we've been missing from this kind of storytelling um that was also one of my favorite moments again another moment that is of course unscripted and just not planned for but it really was a moment of us like kind of convening with our own elders and our own food traditions and our household. And like, I didn't really know where he was going with that. I'm like, where, like, where are you going with this? <laughs> and then, you know, he's like the, the course of the back of the hand is how we taste. I'm like, 
wow, I that was a revelation for me for me as well. So I really genuinely love that moment. I loved it when it happened. And I could not agree more. It is such a perfect example of the kind of thing that is extremely subtle, very easy to miss as a viewer, but its inclusion, um, I do believe, says something about, you know, the folks who made this program. You know, <laughs> and I'm, I'm like thinking about this thing of the importance of, you know, a majority of the crew or, and, and the creative team being uh, Black. And I'm just thinking about some of like the logistical ways in which that is important. You know, like, I think some people might just sort of write that off as like, yeah, 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 I guess it's okay. It's important spiritually, but like, I sort of imagine, and I love the crews that we work with on our, our shows, of course, and, and they're not all Asian. And I, um, but it's a lot more Asian than any other crew. It's a That's lot sure. more Asian than other crews. That is for <laughs> damn sure. And, and I think some of this can be papered over with sort of planning and stuff like that. But I also think about like, okay, let's say we're shooting a scene, whether it's, you know, Dave in front of the camera or you, Steven in front of the camera or, or whoever, like there's, always the possibility that Dave is going to be cooking something he's familiar with, eating something he's familiar with. And if the camera person, the camera operator doesn't know what this dish is, mm -hmm. doesn't know what's going on, mm -hmm. they might just instinctively miss it or just not be able to keep up. If, they, if if you've eaten the same dish as Dave has, if I'm the camera operator and I know like, oh, this is my favorite dish, this is a hot pot, so he's going to stick it in there and then he's going to pull it out then he's yeah, going to dip yeah. it over here and then he's going to eat it. <laughs> like all of those little, like the familiarity with the gestures means like I'm not going to miss yep. a beat here, you know? And then the other way in which I think you're you're dead right is, <laughs> I mean, listen, I, this is weird, but like, I don't think it's a coincidence, Dave, that like Isaac is our <laughs> engineer at, at The Ringer. And, and we spent a lot of times, the two of us talking with just Isaac listening. And it's not that we're uncomfortable with anybody else, but like, because we know Isaac has a familiarity with what we're talking about as Asian people, like we don't have to sugarcoat it or perform it or, or think about the person in the room who's not as versed or fluent mm -hmm. in the conversation we're having, you know, we're not, it's not performative in that way. And sometimes it means mm -hmm. we don't, ex we under explain things <laughs> on, on the podcast, but it also means like we have just like a comfort level, which Steven in your show shows all the time. Like you feel, you look comfortable doing what you're doing. Yeah, uh, man. Yeah, exactly. So um, I think that that comfort is the same comfort that you're you're speaking to, like in your y'all's rapport with Isaac, is real simple. Like we all code switch members, especially of of non-white groups. Like when we're talking to our communities, we code switch. And code switching is interesting. And in I think some people are like, ooh, why would you Use a different and distinct vernacular at home that you don't use, um, you know, in society or at work or at school. And like, I actually think code switching is amazing. I love <laughs> code switching. I love that I don't talk <laughs> the same at my house and with my family, you know, as I do on a podcast, for instance. And that's because language ought to be protected and sacred and like and how we communicate with our loved ones um has a kind of intimacy that i think is special and so i think it's not inappropriate especially knowing the ways of the world and and power dynamics like if people feel the need to speak uh in a particular way to make their lives easier in the workplace like i totally get that 
But I also celebrate those moments where those of us collectively, um, when we go home or when we talk to our people, like we talk in a way that that makes sense for us. And a lot of that to me is also like what this um, work is about that pushes back against erasure, that is about decolonizing, that is about really looking at how deeply our society in every single way has centered itself from the white perspective and slowly and intentionally dismantling all that at every opportunity. And what that looks like in media making is we are going to have an all-Black crew and and we are going to have to work twice as hard to put that crew together, by the way. But like, we're going to celebrate that crew. We're going to celebrate our comfort as a community and make this for us. And so that when Black viewers are watching High on the Hog, there is a level of intimacy and understanding that I can assure you the rest of the folks watching High on the Hog don't have. And that's not, that's not just okay. Like that's beautiful. That's amazing. I would love to have that same experience across culture because the powerful capacity of that is in our own kind of cultural code switching. We actually end up making material that is the most honest and authentic and what's honest, like, that's the good shit. Like, that's what we are. That's what we need to see. And it's hard to get there when you don't have that level of comfort because you're going to use your work voice. You're not going to talk how you do at home. You're not going to talk how you do with the homies. And I understand the inclination to want to protect that because especially with social media, our culture, our language, our dances, um, our food, I mean, you name it, these are all things that are quickly appropriated by the ruling class. And it's appropriated in a way in which even today in 2021, like it's wild to look at how this plays out in real time. You know, you have young black girls on TikTok who are essentially going on strike because they are creating dances that are transforming culture. And the folks who are copying those innovative dances, who are young white girls, end up on late night television shows, end up with their own cosmetics lines. And the originators of these dances, we don't even know their names. They're nowhere to be found. They're, they're fighting and struggling for attention. And so... Cultural erasure is still happening every single day. And the opportunities that we have as people of relative influence and people of color in, in this space to say, no, we really, it really does matter that we have a, a black crew. It really does matter that we have an Asian crew. We need to be moving with that level of intention because when there was no black people on the crew years ago and when there was no Asian people on the crew years ago, Nobody gave a shit. No mm. one, no one was like, we need to have a more diverse crew. And, and like that is in itself something that demands a correction. And so now that y'all are in a position to bring more diversity to your work, it actually is a net benefit 
because of the comfort that we're speaking to, what that does for the conditions on set, I think really, really matters. Y'all know how sensitive that energy and that dynamic is. And again, as far as like the capacity to get to the real stuff without any of the filtering that happens or the translating that happens is ultimately a better experience for the viewer as well. So like as a creative, as someone who's making this work, I think we make better work as a result of it. And then, you know, as someone who consumes the work, like this is the kind of work that I'm trying to see. So even though the material is for anyone to enjoy, it was made with love for black people. And I believe that was received and felt. Um, and I also think that everyone has the capacity to feel that and enjoy that and experience, even if it was not made explicitly for that audience. Absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to sort of bring up this point, though. We're still just talking about high in the hog, but this is not who you are or your majority of your career and what you have moving forward with Whetstone. And, and when I looked at sort of the thesis statement, I, I rarely see the word empathy in a thesis or the, the business mission of any project. And mm -hmm. I don't want anyone to think, because again, this is the first we've spoken about it, that Whetstone Media is an exclusively Black platform for Black voices. You are making it inclusive for all people of color. Or anybody mm -hmm. really that Anyone. needs to yeah. like have a have a larger voice, and I, I just sort of I think it's awesome what you're doing, and and I know I know that Chris and I and everybody would, would want to support you however we can. I super appreciate that, um, and this conversation is is a big part of that. So I, I thank y'all. Yeah, you know, I we use the word empathy at, at Whetstone as a means of describing what the real work is, what the mission is, I guess. And it is very easy to be cynical when talking about food as a means of connecting people. I understand that cynicism deeply. We are not saying that if everyone could just share a meal at the table, all of the world's problems would be solved. <laughs> that, that is not the energy. What we're saying, though, is that food has a unique capacity as a unifying force and that unlike even music or sports or dancing or any other parts of our culture and way of life that is part of the collective human experience, food is the only one that we all have to engage in. And in that truth, it opens up a capacity for a profound understanding made possible by a shift in worldview. And the shift in worldview that we're trying to facilitate is about origin. It is about provenance and reclamation. And it is about looking at food as this very powerful intersectional framework for making the world better and for deepening human connection. And so when I think about empathy, you know, the reason that, and this goes back to, um, again, people's de defensiveness in, in their, in the hero of their own story and how that doesn't actually serve society, how that doesn't serve these individuals either is because empathy is only possible through understanding, right? Like we're asking people, Hey, like 
put the shoe on the other foot and like all these other idioms that are about like understanding people. And yet we have not really put any real emphasis or framing on how do we better understand people? We're not going to understand people better by watching the news, right? Like there's not a lot of media that gives us a way to better understand other humans. Again, because of the way in our, that our society is set up, we're often not organically coming into contact with folks who are unlike us. And so what, what we're saying and what the, the capacity that food holds is, is that if you understand food origins as part of our shared, the only part of our shared collective human experience, we can, for instance, talk about the food and the origins of the African diaspora, the origins of African-American cuisine. But as an Asian-American, you can now see my experience as a Black man growing up in the South in a completely new way after watching High on the Hog with an empathy that would have been otherwise impossible to access had we not organized and oriented these stories around food. Otherwise, we might as well just be watching like a Ken Burns documentary or something, <laughs> right? Like the, the connection between, which I mean, I love Ken Burns, so that, that's no shade, but I'm just saying like <laughs> the connection between, um, between food and story in particular is uniquely profound in that it is the only shared experience of all human beings and using that as a framework of deepening understanding is the precursor to empathy. Understanding is the precursor to empathy. Well, Stephen, I, I mean, I, I, I like like Dave said, I think we both greatly appreciate the hard work you're doing on the journalism side and, and the advocacy side for all people of color and all mediums, you know, Speaking as the creator of the Big Asian Boy Shuffle on TikTok, I'm just so mad. If I see another thin Asian girl doing my Big Asian Boy Shuffle, I'm going to lose my shit, man. Oh, I didn't know about that. Oh, I got to turn in. No, maybe someday. Maybe someday I'll share that dance move. You know what I was thinking, too? Uh, yep. Somebody's got to write a screenplay for Hercules and James yeah. uh, Jennings and, and uh, Thomas Downing. Like, how has how that not happened already? That's wild. It should be coming. Let's pitch it. Let's do it. We need to. Dude, I mean, um, you, know, you should pitch it <laughs> <laughs> from, from the months of DHH. Yeah. After all that, I'm like, dude, you pitch it. <laughs> yeah. After all that talk, two Asian guys pitched a story. About yeah. Yeah. Kids. No, that that is real, though. I mean, that's the, that's the other thing about these stories being um, kind of unearthed is that like we realize how much potential for for more broad storytelling there really is. There's so many things that are being made for the second and third times or, or being reprised. Like there's plenty of stories right here um, in front of us. So I, I hope this is like, I mean, I really do hope this is kind of a a watershed event. I mean, I hope I can, can remain humble in saying that. And I, what I mean by that is that I really hope exactly what you're saying, that we look at what stories have been presented um, and can maybe be given a feature treatment in itself. Um, who are other hosts that are connected to 
their own ancestries through food that we can all learn from and through collectively. And, you know, the, I, I just also want to say like, obviously we, we highlight a lot of, of POC food culture, but we've, we've worked in over 80 countries um, from around the world. Um, like our latest edition, we have stories from Japan, but from India, from Mexico, um, but also like from Eastern Europe, you know, we, we have stories about pig farmers in Hungary. Um, so for me, like my politics are very much about using food as a means of getting to these harder conversations. Um, but sometimes too, it's just about being like, these stories are simply not being told and there's an opportunity to tell them. And so in that perspective, I think, you know, my work is just about making these stories more accessible wherever they be in the world. It just so happens because of how intensely white media has been, you know, historically, um, it just feels like we're very overtly being like, this is a POC thing. But the truth is we, we cover stories from all over the world um, and we just see, I guess, racial or ethnic representation of those stories that looks a little bit more like what the world's racial and ethnic makeup looks like in real life. Yeah. Amen. Well, thank you, man. I really mean that. And I, and, and I know that you're calling from beautiful Santa Fe, so I don't want to take any of your time from, from enjoying New Mexico, but man, thank you. And, um, what else other than Whetstone? Are you, do you have any other projects you want to talk about? Yeah. Thank you all so much. I mean, I, I know this, um, this is a major program, you know, and, and I've listened over the years. Um, obviously, Chris, we've had a chance to break bread over the years. And in many ways, I am kind of like moving in the, the legacy that y'all set forth with Lucky Peach um, as a publisher and now, um, you know, expanding our, our footprint in podcasting. Um, so we we do have a podcast network coming out this fall, like I said, um, that are going to be in these global gastronomy stories. Um, so people can follow all that on our IG at Whetstone Magazine or my IG at I Saw Steven. But really appreciate y'all, not just for your time today, but, um, you know, the blueprint um, in many ways. So thanks. Thanks for that. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thanks, Steven. All right, guys, isn't that guy just so eloquent and articulate and thoughtful? We need more people out in the world like Steven with his viewpoints. Unbelievable figure. I'm so happy that he made High on the Hog. Please read. If you watch this docuseries on Netflix, go read Jessica Harris's book, Dr. Jessica Harris, excuse me, High on the Hog, because that show doesn't cover everything. And I hope they make a season two because there's many stories that could not have been told but amazing. Roger Williams, the Oscar-winning director, did such a remarkable job. And that's it, guys. Stay tuned for another podcast this week. And uh, talk to you later. Give us five stars. Bye.